If it's produced in Korea, that's soju. If it's produced in Japan, that's shochu. That that rule is going to serve you well about 99.99999% of the time. Stephen, did we lose you? No. Nope, did you I'm turn here. off your mic? I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, 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 wasn't sure to, I, I wasn't sure what to do after that. <laughs> okay. Sometimes it's inevitable to give in. Sometimes that's the only way to begin. Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way. Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay. Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. Today we're going to try to clear up one of the most common, I guess, misconceptions about shochu, and at least among American consumers, especially among American consumers, and that is the clear and indisputable fact that Korean soju is not Japanese shochu. Now, we know that these spirits have similar origin stories in several ways, and today they do inhabit similar spaces in some respects, especially in the mind of the American consumer, but they are in completely different galaxies when you are privy to the intricacies of the spirits universe. And we're going to do some things a little bit differently today. We are going to actually taste some samples of these drinks during the show. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, coming to you from Tokyo, Japan. And with me, as always, in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Christopher. How are you? I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm stoked for this episode. Just to finish up who we are a little bit more, we're both certified shochu and awamori nerds. We're published authors. And we both love Korean food, especially kimchi which I understand um, there are certain elements within the, the Chinese culinary world that are tr starting to claim kimchi as their own, which is very <laughs> humorous. Um, and we've been exploring the wonderful world of these Japanese spirits for a long time, which is, well, geez, between us about close to three decades now. And we're really excited to share them with you through this podcast. And today we're going to invite Soju into the fold. Please be sure to download and subscribe to the Japan Distilled Podcast on your preferred podcast app or platform, or you can even download and listen to the episodes directly from our website, japandistilled.com. All right, sorry, that was a long one. Stephen, what's up? Well, you know, Christopher, I'm pretty stoked for this episode myself, but, you know, I proposed this topic, but now that we're actually recording, I'm a little bit nervous. I mean... <laughs> You and I have had some conversations about these drinks and these differences. And, you know, you've been known to, 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 you know, go off on tangents a little bit here. So, you know, I'm hoping we can keep <laughs> this under an hour. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if, you know, 90 minutes tops, I think. Um, but seriously, the, this is obviously a hugely important topic to try to clear up for, from the perspective of consumer misconceptions. And, you know, both of these drinks traditions deserve their own spotlight. They shouldn't be conflated in anybody's mind. Hopefully this episode will help uh, with that uh, going forward. I definitely spend a lot of time bending over backwards to explain the differences between these two drinks traditions. 
which is going to have to continue for the foreseeable future. But at no point do I mean any disrespect. That's that's for sure. Neither does Stephen. Neither of us want to heap any dung to the West. Um, we just want to make sure that people know what they're buying and what and know what they're uh, consuming. And unfortunately, up to this point, that always hasn't been clearly explained to the consumer. Yeah, I think that's fair. Now, you actually lived in Korea before you moved to Japan, didn't you? Yeah. So. I think it's fair to say you were drinking soju before you started drinking shochu. Is that also fair to say? Oh yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. Absolutely, hundred percent correct. I I uh, kind of arrived in Korea a little bit by chance, not entirely on purpose, and was you know I I had a job there. I was working there, and I ended up. I remember. I remember it somewhat vividly, as vividly as is possible, considering the amount of ethanol I imbibed. But on my first night there, my boss was like, you don't know anybody here, right? I'm like, hell no, I just got here like two and a half hours ago. And he's like, okay, uh, I want you to meet me out on this corner and I'm going to take you to dinner. So we ended up at a street stall, basically what we would call in Japan a yatai. And we were out, you know, just eating all sorts of uh, stuff that had been grilled right in front of us. It was great. It was really cool. It was a very nice introduction. And the green bottles came out, of course. And, you know, we just, he just kept on pouring. My glass never got to the bottom. It was always, that was like, it was illegal for the glass to be empty. And I poured for him. I learned that you pour with two hands and you receive with two hands. And we had a hell of a time. And I said, how much of this are we going to drink? And he said, well, you know, you basically should be able to handle about two bottles on your own. I was like, okay, <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. what exactly are we drinking? And he's like, soju. And I, I said, okay. So I did, I think we both had about two, to, two bottles each. And I woke up the next day and I was able to, to go to some meetings and function somewhat normally, but I was in my early 20s. So I had a liver that would not stop back in those days. And I think we've graduated well beyond that stage of life. Um, but yeah, I was drinking soju well before I ever was introduced to shochu a, a good two years before. And it was an indelible part of my two years living in, in Korea. I lived in a small city called Masan. I'm sure we'll hear more about that in the future. But before we really dive in, maybe we should just do a little bit of pronunciation housekeeping. We probably seem really pedantic because we <laughs> had an entire episode about pronunciation. But I think it's important, especially if you're trying to use words from foreign languages and, and you want to visit those countries and you want to make yourself understood. Right up front, we've got these two words that sound extremely similar to at least my American ears. So you have shochu and soju. Shochu and soju sound very similar, obviously, but the difference is that the Japanese has this SH and the CH, so it becomes shochu. Like I said on our very first episode, show me a picture, chew your food, shochu. It's just two verbs, right? Now, soju is not two verbs, and it does sound similar, but shochu and soju, these are different. People often will conflate them. And part of the reason for that is that California labeling allows Japanese shochu makers to sell their shochu with a beer and wine license 
at 24% alcohol if it has the word soju on the label, which is just one of the dumbest regulations I've ever heard of. But <laughs> it's a definite own goal, that's for sure, for the it show, is, it's, shoju yeah. makers who do that. Well, also, you know, it's just terrible for the consumer because it creates this confusion. And now we have to do a podcast episode about it, which is completely unnecessary. We should be talking about <laughs> yep. something much more interesting, I think. Right. Christopher, since you've lived in Korea and you've actually visited soju distilleries, I'm going to let you walk us through the process and the product. Like really, what is this category of soju, Korean soju, and how is it made? Yeah, it's, it's a, I'll try and I'm going to go for sound bites here. Uh, just to keep this from turning into like a 30-minute narrative. Basically, the soju that everybody knows currently, the green bottle stuff, the 350, 360 milliliter bottle soju, is something that hasn't been around that long. And it's something that is wildly successful internationally. Soju as a spirit, sometimes it's erroneously called the best-selling spirit in the world. That's a bunch of bull piss. Um, the best-selling spirit in the world is Baijiu from China. The best-selling brand, however, is a brand of soju. It's the largest soju maker called, it's spelled J-I-N-R-O, and Westerners will pronounce that Jinro, which is actually incorrect. Even though you're saying it exactly like you should by reading that word, uh, the, the uh, sorry, in Korea, they will pronounce it Jilo, almost like it's J-I-N-R-O. L-L-O, basically. Doesn't really matter. But anyways, Jinro, I guess I'll use the the the, the Western pronunciation or the, the Romanized pronunciation. Jinro has been killing it. And shoot, last, no, not last year. It's 2021 now. In 2019, they shipped something like 86 million nine-liter cases in, in 2019 alone of that, of Jinro. And that's just insane. So basically, what we're talking about here is a class of multiply distilled spirits that are just everywhere. And to overstate the importance of this spirit's centrality to Korean food and community and drinking culture, to overstate that is almost impossible. It's so indelible to the way of life in Korea. And that's partly, <laughs> you know, you can see that when you when we're talking about 86 million nine liter cases, then it becomes obvious, wow, people are drinking a lot of soju. But it's also exported quite a bit as well. And we've got a lot of it in Japan. Apparently, Japan's one of its biggest export markets. Uh, the States is getting bigger, bigger Southeast Asia is getting bigger. But what we're talking about, this green bottled product, which has become synonymous with soju, which is far removed from what soju was over 100 years ago, uh, or even less than that. We're talking about a multiply distilled spirit. It's just pure ethanol. It's beverage alcohol ethanol that has been diluted down to these days, less than 20% usually. And then it has a lot of sweeteners, and sometimes other things added to it. So we're talking about a very low-proof, sweet vodka is essentially what we're talking about. And it's everywhere. It's cheap. It's cheap to, of course, produce. It's cheap to consume. I mean, it's like, shoot, it's like a buck 
50 or a buck 60 a bottle at supermarkets in Korea, which is not a whole lot more than a bottle of water if you think about it. And that's for how many cc's? What's the size of that it's bottle? It's 35 cc's, I think. And, and the bottles that we get here in Japan are 36, so 360 mLs. Okay. And it's, yeah, it's, it's just everywhere. So I'm talking about the modern version just because that's really what soju has become. Basically, in 1965, Bak Chang-hee, who was the, you know, he was the, the ruler, he was not an elected ruler, he was the ruler of Korea, put the kibosh on using rice to make spirits, uh, to make the, the national drink. So grains were out all of a sudden, and, and the distilleries, of which there had been thousands, about a hundred years ago, and were down to had been whittled down into the hundreds after Japanese occupation. They were using other starch sources, so we're talking about like tapioca and the cheapest potatoes and spuds they could get their hands on, and anything that they could use the traditional nuruk, which is basically a wheat cake that's been inoculated with wild, what we would call koji. I believe it. I believe it's just. Uh, Aspergillus orizae, this you know the same yellow koji that is indigenous, you know, that is used in the shochu and uh, nihonshu industry here in Japan. And then they they traditionally allowed wild yeast to inoculate it before using that cake, that wheat nuruk, to be the starter for the fermentation. And that gave way to cheaper product or cheaper starch sources, and then also industrial distillation and Industrial distillation means column stills and incredibly pure distillates that are at like above 90% alcohol by volume that were then watered down. I think traditionally a lot of soju was in the 35 to 45% ABV and that steadily dropped over the years. And now it's the bottles that we have in our hands and that we're going to taste later. Those are 16.9%. Soju has changed a, a ton over the years. It's not what it once was, but to, to try and define what traditional soju is, is really just kind of impossible. Traditionally, it was different everywhere you went. And today, there's no rules telling you what to make it out of. I think the only real rule is, though, you can't really, I don't know what the rules are regarding coloring in terms of aging soju. I think that's changed a little bit recently. But otherwise, in terms of where it's made, how it's made, there's really no rules. It's kind of whatever you want to do works and you can call it soju. I talked a little bit about sweeteners and I think this is kind of important because this is part and parcel with soju. I called it a sweetened vodka. How's it sweetened? Well, according to the, the case law and the documentation that I've seen, you've got every maker is doing something different, but you've got various sugars. I mean, I know for a long time they were using saccharin these days, there's aspartame. Um, steviacide is very common. Aspartame is uh, NutraSweet, right? And then, you know, they maybe straight sugar when they feel that it's affordable enough. Uh, sometimes there's amino acids, there's solbitol. I've heard of citric acid. I've heard of mineral salt being added. And, you know, just all of this stuff that gets added to it to create the profile or create the the flavor that is perfect for Korean spicy food. And 
perfect for throwing them back pretty quickly. This is what I think most people understand soju to be today. Where does the distillate come from? It's hard to get a straight answer on this, but I'm pretty sure it's mostly imported to Korea. It's refined further by a Korean company and then distributed to the large, the very, very large monopoly, monopolistic, nearly monopolistic companies that control the mass market soju industry. Are those uh, mass market soju typically, is the fermentation being done with a commercial enzyme? Do you think? Is that the, the standard way of doing it now? Yeah, you know, I believe it probably is, but I think that a lot of the stuff isn't even produced in Korea. So getting information on that, getting a straight talker is not something that I've been able to find thus far. I believe it's a commercial enzyme, but I also don't believe that there's any rule defining that you have to use something cold you like to produce it. I understand. Yeah, I think it's a, and really anything goes on ingredients as well, right? It can be yeah. yeah, it sounds I mean, like it's, all kinds it's, of things. Uh, traditionally, I think it was more grains back in the day, hmm. and before 1965, I guess you could say. And, and then more recently, uh, at least until I think 1999 is when that restriction on using rice was removed. But that's a long time. And that's when this whole industry developed and really grew and just became a given when you're going out to eat and drink. It's just automatic. And it's amazing when you go into Korean restaurants and Korean uh, gastro pubs, there's invariably at least one fridge, often with a, with a clear glass front, almost like a, a really gigantic wine fridge. And it's just shelves and shelves of these green bottles just waiting to be plucked out of there. And you'll go through them. It's a, it's a communal thing. It's a glorious thing. It's wonderful. I love it. And I miss it. Every time I go back, uh, you know, my, my better half is Korean. It was her idea to come to Japan in the first place. You know, we go back to visit family uh, quite regularly during uh, normal times. And, you know, of course, soju becomes a staple at the dinner table, sometimes at the lunch table, rarely at the breakfast table, thankfully. <laughs> now you were saying that th there's the glass fridge with all the bottles in it is that like serve yourself do you go and grab one and they just count up the bottles at the end of the meal no generally in korea there's a lot more of a you know you call out to the server and something that i never really got good at i never enjoyed you know yelling out to somebody i'm you know you and i probably are from the same ilk of like make eye contact maybe raise a raise a hand be like try to get somebody's attention but basically, you have to yell and you shout out across the, the place and you're like, Chogyo! or something like that. And you get somebody's attention and then, and then you yell out how many more bottles of soju you need. And eating and drinking alone is not a common thing in Korea. I mean, it's a very, very communal thing. So you often have at least one other person, maybe two or three other people. So you never really just order one bottle of soju. <laughs> which I think is probably, it's probably a good subheading for this episode. You never really order just one bottle. <laughs> well, especially at that size, I guess it's pretty, pretty quick to go through. Um, yeah. I guess just to take a step back now, mm -hmm. now I think you've set really nice context for what soju is. And I'll just remind our audience really briefly about what shochu is, right? Yeah, cool. And typically we're talking about honkaku shochu. Again, that's what Christopher and I fell in love with. And that's what we usually drink 95% of the time. If we're drinking shochu, it's going to be honkaku. And honkaku shochu has to be made with koji. 
It has to be made from an approved ingredient, which is over 50. And it has to be single distilled in a pot still. None of those things are true with Korean soju. None of those things are required with Korean soju. Mm -hmm. And also for Japanese shochu, honkaku shochu, there are no additives allowed. There are some minor exceptions, which we talked about in an earlier episode, which I believe is entitled honkaku and otherwise. But generally, all you can add after distillation is water and time. And Christopher mm -hmm. mentioned all the different things that can be added to Korean soju with citric acid and different sweeteners and things like that. And to me, that's really interesting because when I think about spicy food and I think about hot weather, which I'm sure Korea is, is hot like Kyushu at certain times a year, mm -hmm. you want something sweet, you want something acidic, you want something spicy in hot weather. So it all fits. The whole thing makes sense to me as to why yeah. this would be a really popular drink in Korea. There is, it sounds like, uh, I've caught wind of some of this. I've tried a few of them and, and I've seen some press about it, that there is a budding craft soju industry in Korea. Is that right? There absolutely is. And it's very, very nascent. It's very, very unsure of itself. It's a baby. It's trying to figure out how to go back to what is quote unquote traditional. Now, traditional is, you know, going back to the Mongol invasion. It really is going way back in history. And when they brought, you know, as we know, the, Mon the Mongolians <laughs> invaded everybody. They invaded Persia, and that's where they picked up distillation technology. Fortunately, that made its way to the Korean peninsula. And one city where I believe they had like a, they had a depot of some kind or some sort of base was in Andong. And Andong soju is often regarded as being one of the more traditional areas for creating or for producing this, this old school style of soju. Now, unfortunately, that's not really the case. There's no real rules defining what Andong soju is, other than the fact that it has to be made within the city limits of Andong city. Otherwise, you can really make it in any way you want. You want to do it in a pot, still cool. Uh, column still, hybrid still, fine. Um, you want to use a traditional, you know, Nuduk starter that I mentioned before? Great. Nobody does that. Uh, you want to use actual Japanese koji with a Japanese industrial yeast? You can do that too. There's not a whole lot. There aren't any guardrails on this thing. So it's a, a lot of time it's hard to take the, the endeavors seriously. Other things that have happened, and that's not to say that there aren't amazing things being done, um, but there are still traditional soju that have sweeteners added to them. And so it's really hard to figure out where to draw the line, I guess, in a lot of ways. I've been to Andong. I went to a few different distilleries. I met with the people. Some were more forthcoming with their production methods than others. Nobody would allow me to see how they get their fermentation started. They wouldn't really answer questions clearly. They wouldn't even tell me how many times they distill it. I think that's getting better, though. I think people are realizing that consumers have enough information to double-check these things, and you better tell them, you better be a, as transparent as you can because they'll stop buying with, if they feel like they're being lied to. There are, for instance, there's a brand called Huayo, which is probably going on close to 15 years old now. And that's a, a vacuum distilled product made from rice. 
there's uh, a couple of brands that are made in the States. And one of them in particular is um, uh, Toki. And Toki is pretty, is quite old school, other than the fact that it uses very, very modern technology. It's still made in this kind of in this, uh, forgive the pun, the spirit of some of the older styles of making it, which has firm roots in in very home brewing and also bootlegging culture, especially once the Japanese occupation kicked in and they really restricted and taxed soju production. That forced a lot of it underground and it just became bootlegging.com over there. And that kind of is what it, anyone can really remember of what people can remember of traditional soju production. That's what it was. It was intensely local. It was intensely secretive. It was intensely up to, up to chance. I mean, because of the wild fermentation and the wild microorganisms that were allowed to kind of take up camp on these nuruk uh, discs of, uh, you know, wheat starter. So it's, it's a really fascinating history and looking at how what was quote unquote traditional has given way and actually was the pause button was hit on traditional until 1999. And then this whole new soju, industrialized soju complex emerged. And then somebody hit the pause button again and allowed the tradition to try to find its way back in. And it's, it's a really interesting world. It's a really interesting scene. And there's some funky stuff being made. Reminds me of a little bit of the Japanese craft beer industry, right? Homebrewing is illegal here. So you don't have a large number of people available to start craft brewing. And so even though craft breweries have popped up all over Japan, they still represent less than 2% of the, the beer market in Japan because you've got these big players. You've got these massive beer companies, Asahi, Sapporo, Kirin, Suntori, and they just dominate, right? And so finding good Japanese craft beer, you can find it, but it's not easy. And it sounds like the Korean soju industry has probably got a similar dichotomy of, of massive producers and then really, really small ones. Yeah. But you know what? Enough talking. We said we were going to drink something. Mm -hmm. Let's drink something. Sure, yeah. Let's try something. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I think we're going to try the Jinro first. Yeah. Right? So why don't you tell me about this. It looks like 17.2% alcohol. It's in a 360 ml. Oh, we've got, actually, we've got different ones, don't we? Oh, do we? Oh, shoot. Okay. I've got the 16.9%. Okay. Yeah, I've got... What? Whatever. It's You I, know what? It's probably going to be very pretty yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's going to be stronger. You know, it's... it's <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is uh, Tam, Tam Isil, uh, which is a... I'm holding it up to my computer like the camera's on. <laughs> uh, you know, this is... This is... Uh, 360 mil bottle, and this is one of Jilo Jinro's flagship brands. And Tam Isil is actually the Korean pronunciation of the Hanja or the, the Kanji for Jilo, for Jinro. So if you pronounce it in the Korean style, it's Tam The first character is Cham, and then the second one is Isil. And this is, you know, this is the mass market stuff. So it's it's got some sweetener to it. Now, when I lived in Korea back in the early aughts, the ABV on mass market soju was around 22, 23%. So it's steadily dropped. And when I lived there, uh, it was not long after the, the European community and the US had kind of gone after 
Korea in the WTO for unfair trade practices and overtaxing imported alcohol and that sort of thing. There's a quote from the case the case law, which I think is great, the Korean side, and and I quote, they they said, soju goes well with Korean barbecue and other Korean meals because the drink's harshness cuts the spiciness of the food. And for me, that really is the soju that I remember from my early days <laughs> in Masan. It really had a burn to it. It would make you, and this is not a mistake, I'm going to make this sound, you would, you would sip it and you'd go, you know, that sound would come out of your mouth because it was just it had this sharpness to it, yeah. which could cut through Korean, you know, the spice, the red spice of Korean cuisine so well. And when you open this, have you opened it? I have not. I, I was waiting to crack, drink. I thought we were drinking. It. And it's really, mine's really mild. Oh, this is too. It's like almost no nose. And that's because we have it chilled. I think that's going to, I mean, Normally, you drink the green bottle stuff as cold as you can get it. And yeah. so now I've got it in a glass. Let's see if this opens up at all when I swirl it. And I get not really. It smells a lot like ethanol. I get the, I get the faintest, faintest hint of rubbing alcohol. I feel like I'm about to get a, a blood draw. Yep. All right. Let's get. Let's, and I mean, that's about all I get. I don't really get any. I don't. I don't think this know, is the, something the to fruit. This is really something to savor, right? I think we just need to have a drink. Is that is that fair? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think that's very fair. In fact, I don't think I've ever... I, when I'm in Korea, I never smell right. it. Bottoms up. Mm. Sweet. It is definitely sweet. Yep, it's got definitely got sweetener, um, and and then it, and then the the ethanol kind of finish on it. The vapors are are there. Yep. But it's so it's so much softer and so much like um, oh wow it's sweet mm-hmm. that sticks around yeah it's quite sweet no yeah I think I think the the, the acids in it are just giving you mouthfeel right I don't get any acidity I don't get any acidity on the palate Mm-mm. wow that's it yeah I mean it's it's gets easy it gets lighter and lighter and lighter and I think that's important you know Korea is dealing with an even worse demographic crunch than Japan in some respects. And they they need to widen the potential market at home, but they really do also need, much like shochu does, a robust foreign market. And they're way ahead of the shochu industry in that sense. I think I could finish one of these bottles by myself. I don't think I could finish two. I'll be honest. Yeah, it needs to be with food. It really does. I think this... With two, I think I, something that you and I have to do is we once once we're able to really move internationally without too many restrictions, we got to go to Korea. We'll go have dinner with the fam, and and then we're gonna we'll go out and you know we'll we'll uh, you know pub hop a little bit and meet some people, have some fun, eat some amazing food, and probably drink way too much mass market soju. I'm in for that as long as the the next day is a day off. Because I think if I drank too much of this, I probably wouldn't be functional the next day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the way that we sometimes get up to no good, it'd be two days off we'd need. Um, okay. So that was interesting. You want to, yep. you know, fortunately, and this was at Stephen's urging, I think this is a great idea. We're going to actually, li- we're going to taste a second one. We're going to taste Pio 25. That's right. Now I'm going to do this one on the rocks. So I am going to grab ice. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sip it straight. It still has the plastic seal on it. Now, Huayo is 
uh, I said earlier, I think is, is around 15 years old. I, I, uh, I know that it's a hundred percent rice and I believe it's vacuum distilled. I don't know how many times it goes through the still, honestly. Um, but I think this is going to be a, a much more interesting spirit and I haven't had this for a number of years. So, um, and I apologize for all of you out there. You're listening to me peel first peel the plastic off of this bottle and then shove it into a garbage can, which is a little bit too close to the microphone. <laughs> yeah, no, this has a oh, nose to it. That's this has a much nicer nose. Also sounds better going into the bottle. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but yeah, I could hear it. it. Sounded good. I think this one is definitely vacuum distilled. I definitely get the rice. Yeah. Um, so it's got enough character left, regardless of how many times it's gone through this still, uh, you know, to to present itself as something that I would associate with a rice distillate. So that's nice. Yep. A little bit of little soft dairy note, little soft vanilla note. Mm-hmm. I like it. That's actually it's it's almost got. Yeah, it's got a yogurty vanilla type of thing. That's it's very, very soft and balanced. Yeah, it would probably equate it with at least for listeners who are familiar with shochu it it's almost a yokaichi kome ah uh, that's interesting yeah yokaichi kome is a is a rice shochu but it's konma so it's the blended between the multiply distilled and the single distilled and that's almost what this reminds me of unfortunately i couldn't find a bottle of that uh, on short notice but um i'll have to revisit that before i uh finish this little bottle of Ayo, which is a 375 actually is it one one final i think mine's a five mine is a 500 um one final note about huayo and i believe this goes for most of their products i know they have a 17 percent uh, let me see if i can remember 17 25 41 maybe and then like a 53 hmm. and most of their product is jar aged like a traditional Korean clay pot aged for about six months, okay. which is interesting. I don't get a lot of minerality on this. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about the earthenware vessels that they use for aging in Korea, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of, there's no noticeable minerality on the nose, or at least not the type of minerality I'm used to. Right. Not what, not what I would expect from Japanese pots, but maybe they're different in Korea. This is, this is, I, you know, this is something I could see myself drinking. You know, if I was, I'm I'm sipping it straight. It's quite nice. I'm having it on the rocks. It it uh, it's it's clearly vacuum distilled. It's light, refreshing, a little bit of sweetness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really easy, nice, nice drink. I think. Um, cool. This was fun. I'm glad we could do an episode like this early on to help clarify for consumers the differences between Korean soju and Japanese shochu. And hopefully clear up that misconception around the labeling uh, gaff own goal uh, with the California market that ends up spreading across the United States. But obviously, I think there are situations where either of these drinks are, are, you know, they have their place. Oh, absolutely. Yep. I 100% agree. And I, this is hilarious that talking to you of all people like my my shochu brother from another mother, and we're doing an episode where we're only drinking soju. I never thought I would see the day when that would happen. Right. 
I mean, I guess it took what essentially close to a year of of lockdown <laughs> for us to get to this point. That's what that's what <laughs> that's what quarantine will do to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's good. I, I hope that through, I believe that through this and I, I went pretty deep into some of the, the, the back story of Soju and how it came to be, but hopefully people now will be able to look at a label and see the word Soju on a, on a bottle of spirit in California and say, okay, is this really Soju? I think that's the question that we want people to ask and, you know, look at where it's produced. If it's produced in Korea, that's soju. If it's produced in Japan, that's shochu. That that rule is going to serve you well about 99.99999% of the time. Stephen, did we lose you? No. Nope, did you I'm turn here. off your mic? I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, 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 wasn't sure. you... I, I wasn't sure what to do after that. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'll close it out then. Okay. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Japanese shochu and awamori in particular, then please pick up a copy of Stephen's book, The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks. It's available on Amazon as well as through your local bookseller. Also, please tune in every week to our Shochu Pro Show Tuesday Instagram Live on my Instagram feed, and that's located at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. And you can also find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter. Stephen, where can people find you online? You can all find me at shochu underscore danji. That's S-H-O-C-H-U underscore D-A-N-J-I on Twitter or Instagram. As always, if you have any questions about these drinks, please feel free to reach out to us via Twitter or Instagram. We're always more than happy to chat. Of course, if you want to learn more about shochu, I strongly recommend Christopher's book, The Shochu Handbook, available on Amazon and elsewhere for download as an ebook. Thank you so much for listening. This was a lot of fun. It was. We hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have this most recent episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. And if you did, then please rate or review us on your favorite podcast listening app. And we'll be back soon with our next episode of Japanese Spirits. Goodness. I've been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman reporting to you from Japan. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Path, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Kanpai! Kanpai!